Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hello and welcome to Jesuitical, a podcast by the young, hip, and lay editors of American Media. That lay part means we aren't Jesuits, but we work with them. Join us each week for a smart Catholic take on faith, culture, and the news, often over drinks. I'm Ashley McKinless, and I'm joined by Zach Davis. And Ashley, we have reached the end of yet another season. Unbelievable. I know, I know. Uh, over four years of having these conversations over drinks. I know. And it's still fun. And we should say that the last year and a half definitely counted as like five. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. So we've been forced to record this through a screen, which is very sad. And we're hoping to be back in person soon. But we do want to say like a special thank you to all the listeners that have stuck with us through this past year and a half that's been crazy and sad and terrible because I I know that a lot of people lost commutes and things that normally that's when they would have listened to us and still found time to engage in these conversations. So thank you, thank you, thank you. And we're hoping to see you in the fall when things are a little bit back to normal, uh, more back to normal than they already are getting for all of us. Yeah, for sure. And for this final episode of this season like any other. Who are we talking to, Zach? So this, we have a really exciting guest to end the season on. We're talking to Dr. Paul Farmer, who uh, you may know from a number of things. He's the founder of Partners in Health. He um, was featured in a book called uh, Mountains Beyond Mountains. There's a Netflix documentary about him and overall just a very cool global public health person. Right. He has dedicated his life to bringing global health and and medical treatments and vaccines to the poorest of the poor around the world. And so we thought after this, you know, we know that the pandemic is not over, especially for the people in in poor countries who don't have access to vaccines. So we really wanted to get his perspective on on what this past year and a half has revealed about the way we treat public health in this country and around the world and and what lessons he's learned. Yeah, so stick around for that. And he's also inspired our drink this week in a, in a somewhat roundabout way. <laughs> yes, we are drinking some Chardonnay, some some duckhorn Chardonnay to be specific, which is quite delicious. I, er, well, I shouldn't say it's quite delicious. Um, it is quite delicious, I would agree. Um, and we should say why uh, we've chosen Chardonnay because we, so we sent uh, Dr. Farmer a a mic and a little audio kit so he could sound nice and wonderful for, for you and our editor and producer. And he didn't know that his mic had arrived because we shipped it to him in uh, our executive producer. I shouldn't use the royal we here, uh, Sebastian Gomes, s- shipped it to him in a Chardonnay box. And so Why wouldn't he, he expect a microphone in a Chardonnay box? I know, I know. So we, we had say some- the podcast is over drinks. <laughs> That's right. So we had some extra time uh, with Doctor Farmer while he was able. He was setting up that mic, and we discussed the merits and. Uh, <laughs> lack of of Chardonnay. So, yes. cheers, Ashley, to the end yeah. of another great season. Cheers, Zach. So, stick around for our conversation with Dr. Paul Farmer. But first, we have a few words about our sponsor this week. 
So we are excited to share the news that the Great Courses Plus is now Wondrium. Wondrium has everything you loved about the Great Courses Plus and so much more. Yeah, that's right. So we've been big fans of the Great Courses Plus and all the courses that are on there and really was excited to find out that they're becoming Wondrium, which is going to have all the same content that if you if you're already a Great Courses fan, like all that stuff's still there. Um, but they've got a lot more content coming out through that streaming platform with brands like History, uh, Culinary Institute of America, uh, National Geographic, and also some some Wondrium originals. And so there's a whole lot more of courses, series, documentaries, pilots, and uh, Wondrium exclusives coming your way through through this new service. And at no extra cost. So we've been digging into what Wondrium has to offer. And uh, one thing that I've really loved so far is the on this day series, which, you know, every few days you can tune in for five to 10 minutes and learn about something in history that happened on that day. We were going to talk about one episode in particular about uh, Joan of Arc, who on June 12th in, in 1429, but really sort of the summertime had a pretty significant a journey um, in in fighting some wars and freeing the French from English rule. And I feel like Joan of Arc is this person that, you know, we've all we've all heard of her. We all, we reference her, especially in Catholic circles all the time. She's a saint. But you forget how remarkable like her story really is, right? Like uh only 18, 19 when she when she le- leads like a French army against the English. It, it you know, as the person in the course said, it, it would be unbelievable if it hadn't been so well documented. That is what stuck out to me too. Like I kind of, you know, like you said, she's this mythic figure, not only for Catholics, but for everyone. And I kind of assumed that there were parts of her story that were kind of mythic and, you know, tradition says, but no, there are documents that show that she led these military campaigns and and helped restore the King of France. So pretty wild. Yeah. And I feel like it's good to just kind of, you know, revisit some of these lessons of history that we discovered maybe when we were uh, in CCD or college or sometime, but have really forgotten. I mean, I haven't thought about Joan of Arc in in years. And you can do all of that and more in in various episodes in the On This Day series from Wondrium. That and hundreds and hundreds of other other content that they've got in their service. And if you sign up now through our special URL, you can get a 14-day free trial of unlimited access if you go to wondrium.com slash Jesuitical. That's W-O-N-D-R-I-U-M dot com slash Jesuitical for 14 days free of unlimited access to all that Wondrium has to offer. That's wondrium.com slash Jesuitical. And now we've got Signs of the Times, the part of our show where we sift through the Catholic news of the week so you don't have to. Though I think this week you probably have been, based on our Facebook page. Yeah, that's (laughs) right. What's our first story, Zach? So our first story is about the U.S. Bishop's annual meeting where they voted to pretty overwhelmingly to draft a document to examine the, quote, meaning of the Eucharist in the life of the church, um, which followed a pretty lengthy debate during their spring meeting. Right. So this was approved overwhelmingly, 168 votes in favor and 55 votes against with six abstentions. But yeah, that that overwhelming consensus doesn't reflect kind of the contentious debate that led up to it. That's right. You know, a lot of times the it's not to say that the bishops meetings are are not <laughs> filled with debate and discussion, but I think for those of us who have watched these for for a few years and a number of years, definitely notice that sometimes where there had been pretty, I don't know, formalistic rubber stamp sort of parliamentary procedures became real like 
discussions and in heated debates among the bishops. And we should say one 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 person we haven't mentioned yet here is President Biden, who was thrown into this mix and was sort of a focal point in a lot of the coverage coming out of this. Talking about the origins of this document, you know, you got to go all the way back to the inauguration of of President Joe Biden, our second Catholic president. On that day, the president of the U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops issued a statement, you know, in which he laid out areas of you know common ground with the president, but also had some pretty strong language about the president's support for abortion and other life issues. And at the same time, the bishops had formed a a working group that was geared towards figuring out how they would manage this relationship with the the second Catholic president, given his support for abortion rights. So early on, this emerged as like very clearly an issue of concern for the Catholic bishops in the United States. Um, And so between January and this meeting in June, this debate came out in public. And I think an interesting way in the Catholic Church, usually we don't see bishops publicly disagreeing with each other, but they were doing so, including in the pages of America Magazine, when it came to this issue of should the U.S. bishops say something about whether President Biden should receive communion. And I think we just kind of want to you know, lay out what what happened, what hasn't happened yet, because I think that's important to keep in mind, especially when people are often only reading headlines as things come through their feeds. And this is seeped into the larger cultural conversation as to what's happening. So what didn't happen? The bishops did not vote to deny Joe Biden communion. The, The existing policy is that that is up to the local bishops sort of discretion and authority. And, you know, if there were ever, if there was ever going to be a national policy for the U.S. bishops, that would require a much higher level of of, of scrutiny and sort of process than w- what's currently happened right now. Right. Yeah. I don't think it's even, you know, canonically possible for the, the, the National Bishops Conference has very little real power. So they could offer guidance national guidance even but they could not they could not usurp the power of the local bishop to decide about whether to deny communion to someone and we should say that Biden's current local ordinary Carton Wilton Gregory in Washington DC has said that he will not deny Biden communion the next thing is that we actually don't have a document yet right we have an outline and you know there are, there are multiple parts to that outline. A lot of it is sort of just more generally about the Eucharist. The bishops also seem concerned. They they all cite the survey where it said a lot of Catholics don't necessarily fully believe or understand the real presence of the Eucharist, which you know we've written about in America is not necessarily <laughs> the case um, for for a number of reasons. That's kind of like a at least a flawed way of asking that question in that in that survey that it gets brought up all the time. But there is definitely a section on what to do about the Eucharist and, and public figures, of which Joe Biden was mentioned by name several times throughout this meeting. Though not in this draft proposal that they worked on, we should say. Correct. His name is not in the draft proposal. He was just his name was brought up in the discussions and the the idea for this document in part came out of the working group about Joe Biden. Uh, so what have the reactions been to this vote? Zach. Well, I'll just like say from what I've heard from I, th- I think a lot of our listeners in the Facebook group, and um, I, I, I will say I'm really grateful that so many of you were able to jump in and sort of express your thoughts on this and, and try to work this out and, and be with one another. And I think people are really upset. That's what I've, I've heard from from people that listen to this show. You know, I've been talking with priests I know who really feel like there's a fallout that they have to deal with. You know, the, the bishops sort of meet for a week and then on Sunday, Pastors are kind of left hanging high and dry on how to explain and talk about this. One pastor I know of said that, you know, longtime parishioners he knows are leaving the church finally over this. And people have definitely, you know, said similar sentiments in the Facebook group. So 
it is, I would say, I don't know, really not catastrophic, but like people are very, very upset. I can't help but think that part of that is is the timing. I mean, we are we're just we're coming out of this pandemic where people have been deprived of the Eucharist for over a year. And then, you know, just as we're starting to go back to mass in person, what we hear from the National Bishops Conference is like you said, if you're just reading the headlines, it sounds like they're debating when we should be denying Eucharist to people instead of you know, welcoming people back and saying, we're so glad you're coming back. We can't imagine what it would be like to be without the Eucharist for a year because the bishops have not been without the Eucharist for a year. Yeah, that's right. And before saying a little bit more about that, I, I, to just kind of nuance this conversation a little bit and, and if, you know, in the spirit of charity, like offer a few benefits of the doubt here, um, because I think it's, that's important to do. As, as young Catholics, right, should try and read in the best intentions into this. Um, communion is important, right? And it's not necessarily bad to have discussions like this, especially and particularly about people in power, right? You saw a little bit of this when President Trump was still in, in the presidency, particularly around treatment of refugees and migrants at the border. At least one bishop brought up, you know, imposing canonical penalties on on people that, you know, cooperated with this. That that did not go anywhere, especially certainly not as far as as this has gone, especially because the church in its history has has let a lot of people in regimes really abuse their 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 presence in church and with the church um, to commit really horrible atrocities. Right? I don't I don't think I need to. I, that should bring to mind some some ready examples. That's a separate question of should we be doing this to President Biden right now? Yeah, and just to kind of echo that, I would I would invite people just because we are all tempted to let our political leanings reflect the way we see the church. And would you have if Trump was Catholic, would you have cheered or been upset by bishops talking about whether he should be denied communion given his manifest disregard for human dignity. I just would urge trying to like think about this consistently um, and not put partisan feelings ahead of, of what you actually believe about denying the Eucharist to people. Yeah. Now, to be, to be perfectly candid, <laughs> this has been a disaster. Yes. I, I think a lot of people see our second Catholic president, who at least aligns with the church on a number of things, on a lot of things, who definitely disagrees with this area of huge importance, right? It's not, I'm not trying to denigrate the, the issue of abortion, but I feel very frustrated that after this past year, where everyone had the worst year of their life, people are emerging and it looks like the church didn't even notice. The church has not even noticed like what, what we're going through, what we've gone through with this. As you said, Ashley, we just spent the last year and a half without the Eucharist. Right, we all we all watch the TV mass. We all mm -hmm. said this act of spiritual communion. We know what it's like to not have it, and to see that being used as sort of a political discussion, being brought into this realm of hyperpartisanship that is plaguing this country, especially when this doesn't seem to be an issue anywhere else in the world. Right, you, you know, President Biden was just with at the G seven summit with a, a number of Catholic leaders, right, and you don't really see any of their bishops' conferences having conversations about whether or not to deny them communion. And, and and Biden was at mass when he was on that trip. And so I think people feel like the church is fighting the same culture war that it's been fighting for 20 years at a time when 
we're just coming out of the, you know, we're coming out of a resurgence of the sex abuse crisis, which really hurt the church's authority to speak on moral issues. We're coming out of this pandemic, which was awful. And, and, and we're still talking about this. Yeah. Um, I get that anger and frustration. A couple of things I would say, not in rebuttal, but just like things to always keep in mind is like, there's no such thing as the bishops. And so, yes, there were some bishops that were engaging in this hyper partisanship and and calling out Biden by name. There are a lot of other bishops who seemed, you know, genuinely distressed about the situation in the United States. You know, we've been talking about the new evangelization for years and it has had zero effect on the amount of people feeling like they need to come to mass or feeling like the Eucharist should be you know, the source and summit of their faith. And so just feel like I, I do believe that they are genuinely concerned about that, or some of them are, and that, you know, <laughs> whatever the origins of this document are, many of them are coming to it with with good faith. And, you know, some of them are would agree that the timing is off and we shouldn't be, we shouldn't even be talking about this. So I would just nuance it a little bit in that way. And like, I, I, I guess... I don't know. I'm generally kind of an unflappable person. Um, and so my general reaction to this has not been anger, but more just like sadness because it just sh just shows a church that still hasn't figured out how to talk to its flock in a credible way and is just, yeah, like you said, is relying on the same same issues it keeps that they've gone to in the past and they still haven't figured out <laughs> public relations in any way like the fact that they couldn't see this coming is yeah I, I is pathetic not in like a mean way but like I actually feel bad for them because they've they seem like they're just floundering um, and you can see that they put out a <laughs> a Q&A after this vote kind of responding to common questions that should have been addressed before the vote or you know like why are they doing this now? Does this ban holy or does this ban communion for politicians? And like the answer was like no, but that has been the headline. So it's just like I don't know. This doesn't. It's it seems less like malicious and more just like frustrating, incompetent, and floundering to me. I don't know. I guess I haven't like come to expect anything different from the bishops at a national level, just because that's not where my faith is grounded in any way. And I think we want to end this discussion with just like a little, a challenge to look at the hope here, um, especially if you are someone who is really distressed by this. And, and, and maybe if you were, were hanging on to the church by thread and, and, you're, and you're thinking about, you know, finally letting go and, and leaving. First of all, I mean, like your feelings are valid and, and no way am, are, are, am I, or are we trying to say that they're not? But the biggest thing you could do in response to this is, is, is go receive the Eucharist. Right, like go go chew on on Jesus's flesh and think and pray about this and and at, and like ask what's going on. Um, it's this this church is not that that Eucharist is not it's not the bishop's Eucharist. It's it's the church. It's it belongs to the church, which is all of us. And I think that you know for most of the church's history, we had no idea what I mean. Bishops' conferences themselves are a relatively new invention in the church, and you know. For most of the church's life, lay people like you and me, Ashley, would have never known what was coming out of a 
out of a bishop's meeting or or thought, and people just have genuinely genuinely had to do the work of receiving the sacraments and doing the works of charity. And I I would hope that like as you're looking at sort of you're doing your own sort of interior survey of what's going on in, inside you, and that just beware of the, the the temptation to despair, because that is not where the voice of God is. That's something we talk about all the time at the end of the show, in particular. And look for for where where is the voice of God calling you? And I, I hope I, if if you're thinking about leaving, I, let me just say I hope you stay. Yeah, and not only stay in the church, but stay in in this community. Um, in the the conversation we are having, it's it's really heartwarming to see people kind of ministering to each other within our Facebook group. So even as this season comes to an end, know that we'll keep that going um, and we'll continue to jump in there. And so, yeah, stay there, talk to people in your community and know that our prayers will be with you. And now stick around for our conversation with Dr. Paul Farmer. Joining us from Miami is Dr. Paul Farmer. Dr. Farmer is a medical anthropologist and physician and co-founder of Partners in Health. Welcome to Jesuitical, Dr. Farmer. Great to be here with you. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for joining us. This is like a real treat and joy and honor. Well, thank you. I'm glad you feel the same way I do. Oh, thanks. Uh, We could start any number of places, but I'm wondering if we're we're coming up on a year and a half into this pandemic, and Americans in particular have been confronted with a level of death from infectious diseases that I think a lot of us thought could never happen here in our privileged bubble. Now, you've been fighting epidemics in poor countries for decades. Do you think that the shock of the last year has a chance of being a turning point in how we, in, in, particularly in America, approach global health, or are we just going to go back to the way it was? You know, I, I would tend to believe that it does have a chance of changing things for the better. You know, the dimensions of our failure, I mean, we've performed uniquely poorly as a country with the exception of vaccine development. The dimensions of that failure, uh, I think, have worked their way into the minds and hearts of a lot of people. I mean, and I admit, as a physician, you know, who has worked in proximity to this, and as a family member who's lost family and patients, I probably have a particularly a difficult proximity to it. But I think in my experience, speaking with people who are not physicians or not didn't lose their own family members, I see the option, you know, the opportunity for change. And I also think more to the point, the, the federal government and many state governments see that the way we've been doing things, our lack of investment in public health has been wrong. And that, you know, people will have to sort out a narrative in order to explain our failures. And I, I'm hoping that people will come to the conclusion that we aren't doing things right. We need better safety nets. We need more investment in public health. And we need more investment, too, in the quality of care that we can provide for the critically ill. So I, I'm, I, you know, probably guilty of pathological optimism, but I have conviction that we're going to make real progress. So back in 1995, you wrote an article for American Magazine called Medicine and Social Justice. And you're talking about tuberculosis, not 
you know, COVID-19, obviously. But you asked this question, how would a health intervention inspired by liberation theology be different from those with more conventional underpinnings? So I'm really curious, like what would a COVID response that was inspired by liberation theology looked like? Well, I'm, now I'm dead curious, having forgotten that piece. Uh, what, what did I say? <laughs> but I'll bet you, I'll bet you that I said things that would be highly relevant to our COVID response. You know, the first two things that come to mind, and I'm betting that must be in that article, is there's something really robust about the idea of a preferential option for the poor, because the pathogens themselves make that option, right? Name me a pathogen that strikes the privilege more than the poor. And I'd be quite surprised. Sometimes you'll, you know, I have students that will say, well, what about this? And what about that? And in my experience, it's almost never the case. You know, when I say the poor, that's a stand-in for marginalized by racism, gender inequality, the dismissal of indigenous views. There's a long list. So I think that's, that's one thing, that it's always a good idea to make a preferential option for the poor in healthcare delivery, and especially so during a giant pandemic. But there are other things as well. One of the things I learned uh, in the 80s as a medical student shuttling between Harvard and Haiti was that we could do a really good job identifying and bringing to cure patients with tuberculosis in Haiti if we had the social supports that the patients needed. And those were generally around the very basics, like, do they have enough to eat? And, and you didn't have to do research to find that out. They would just, my patients or our patients would just say as much. Who's going to watch their kids if they come to the clinic and waste a whole day, you know, loitering about, waiting for medications that really should have been brought to them by community health workers? And who's going to look after their kids when they do have to come in? Who's going to help cook for them? Who Who is going to harvest their crops? So all those things that I learned in Haiti have been you know, just as true, if in different ways, in the United States as well. During the COVID pandemic you know, in Massachusetts, Partners in Health has worked very closely with the state health authorities to do just that kind of work there, to bring the equivalent of community health workers, whether they're called contact tracers or something else, into the mix, and also to look very closely at how we could better provide social supports to people we were asking to isolate from others. And, you know, it's so obvious when you're in the middle of it, right? I mean, how can someone cut themselves off for 10 days, two weeks from the rest of their community and families without that kind of social support? We, we just don't know any good examples of that. And so we applied the same lessons that we learned in Haiti in Massachusetts. Now, could you like just briefly, like in elevator pitch, explain this concept of a community health worker? Because as a non-medically inclined person, I found this pretty radical, but also so obvious to making things better in, in like the most succinct way possible. What is this person and how does that flip medicine on its head? If you'd really read my essays, you'll know that I'm not going to go for concise. But <laughs> I, uh, I will say that uh, there is kind of an elevator, elevator pitch version of this. And, you know, it, again, I got this idea from liberation theology, but I got the term from the Haitians I work with back then. When we started thinking about community health workers, remember, this was in an area in central Haiti where there was no clinic or hospital, there were no doctors. So we ended up building clinics and hospitals and recruiting nurses and doctors. But back then, when we opened this very small clinic, 
we started seeing plenty of patients with tuberculosis and we knew that we couldn't bring them to cure. How do we know that? Because we failed. And the Haitians, you know, my colleagues, none of them physicians at the time, said, well, we need, and they use this word accompagnateur, which, you know, he or she who accompanies. And that was the term that they used for the community health workers. So I started reading about accompaniment as well in the, in, in the sense that theologians use the term. And we stuck with the expression to describe the community health workers. And what they did, here's your elevator pitch, is they linked the clinic to the home. And later we found out that there need to be accompaniateurs to need clinics to link clinics to hospitals. So there were really no experiences, except with very acute illness and injury that was going to be over and out. Like if you get uh, someone with acute pneumonia, if you admit someone with acute pneumonia, and they're going to be in the hospital the whole time throughout their therapy, maybe you don't need a community health worker. Maybe you don't need a living link between a hospital and a home. But those are very exceptional cases. And most people, certainly all those with chronic illnesses like diabetes, major mental illness, AIDS, tuberculosis, most malignancies, serious complications of any illness or injury, they all need accompaniment. We all need accompaniment, in other words. So again, I, I don't I don't think that's an elevator pitch, but you know, it, they are the living links between where people play out their lives in their homes, their workplaces, their churches, their communities, their neighborhoods, and the medical institutions that we know how to build and, and staff. But if we don't have community health workers, the quality of the care for those kind of afflictions is very limited. And that's been especially true in the United States, where we have some very fine hospitals, like the one I work in in Boston, but without a, a you know a cadre or an army even of community health workers, uh, it's very difficult to make sure that they receive the same quality of care that they might get inside the hospital. And you know you've described yourself as an optimist, so I have to ask if COVID nineteen can't you know get America to jump into action in terms of creating those linkages between the medical world and meeting people where they're at, then like, what, what can, like, what, what's going to get us there? Well, there's nothing in my lifetime, you know, that I've seen that offers a better chance. You know, sometimes I thought after the recession in 2008, you know, there would be a waking up and we said, well, you know, if unemployment's high, why don't we just train oh, let's say a million community health workers to be living links between communities and medical institutions. That didn't come to pass. And, you know, I was, I, I'm 61 and, and I can say without a doubt that this is the ranking health problem of my lifetime in this country and in many others. So I think a lot of us are banking on this being the, the stimulus for a real rethink of our systems. I'm wondering if you could say a little bit about how to reach people as we're coming out of this pandemic and we're developing vaccines and getting shots in arms. There's still a good amount of the population that is at least vaccine hesitant. And, and you've worked in places, I'm thinking particularly in like Rwanda, coming out of the genocide, where public trust kind of needed to be rebuilt to combat a public health problem. And as you survey what's happening in the U.S. with our vaccine rollout, and people being hesitant about getting this care that a lot of people around the world need and don't have access to. Is there an approach that, that we're missing or, or should we just keep 
going with the like million dollar lotteries. <laughs> I don't have a problem with the million dollar lotteries. That's how important this is. But I would just say that for me, the term vaccine hesitant is a diagnosis of exclusion, as we say in medicine, right? Because until we remove all the structural barriers that have generated no small amount of that mistrust, we really cannot be sure that what we're seeing is in people's heads and not in our virulent society, you know, which is riven by racism, gender inequality, and massive social inequalities of all sorts. No national insurance program that covers everyone. A, uh, a public health system from which we've divested. So, you know, by the way, the, most of the time when I say this, people are just roll their eyes and say, he's telling us that there is no such thing as vaccine hesitancy. And I'm not really saying that. I'm just saying, in my experience over the last 35 or so years, it's a diagnosis of exclusion. Don't invoke it until you've addressed the structural barriers, cost barriers. You know, if you, if you take um, a, a vaccine like uh, the vaccine for human papillomavirus, which can prevent the great majority of cases of cervical cancer, it also costs a lot of money. And, you know, people will say, well, the COVID vaccine is free. Well, getting there might not be. I actually, you know, flew uh, from Miami to Boston to get my COVID vaccine. You know, granted, I got it early, uh, as other uh, medical faculty did. But, you know, who can do that? You know, people, the elites of Latin America are flying up to Miami to get their COVID vaccine. I, I just lost a friend last week uh, in Haiti. A, uh, a distinguished public health physician, and she died unvaccinated. But there's no way she could have gotten the vaccine because it wasn't available in Haiti. I know these are rather stark examples, but I'm I'm saving my comments about vaccine hesitancy until we do more to build that trust. And you brought up uh, Rwanda after the genocide against the Tutsi. It was pretty much the same experience there. We heard that there would be massive mistrust in the rural areas to which we were dispatched, and, and where we still work, by the way, 20 years later. But we didn't see massive distress. We saw a clinical desert. I mean, we got sent to a district in, and ended up being sent to three districts in Rwanda. And in none of them was there even a hospital, a public hospital, or any hospital. There was, you know, I'm talking about large places, like in the north of Rwanda, we were sent to a district with probably 350, 400,000 people, no hospital, and not a single doctor. Also, no electricity, no water. So I, I'm, I'm sort of trained by the Haitians to be skeptical about that. And so it was in West Africa, you know, during the Ebola crisis. Was there mistrust? Massive. But when we started providing care to patients, did they shun us? Did they refuse to come to the Ebola treatment unit? No, they did not. So I'm just saying it, it's way too readily invoked. And the way to build trust is actually to be quiet and humbly provide service to the needy. And, and the needy in this case would be any sick person, but particularly the, the people who are sick and facing poverty. It's not a bad stance to take, right? To say, I'm going to you know, withhold my thoughts about vaccine hesitancy until we've addressed our own structural hesitancy to serve people with dignity properly reliably uh, and and you know in a way that isn't so inconvenient to them that it, you know it, it, it messes up other parts of their lives so 
the language you were using there and the language um, that's incorporated into the mission statement of Partners in Health, which you which you co-founded, you know, service, humility, uh, you you say in your mission statement, your, our mission is to provide a preferential option for the poor in healthcare. It really sounds a lot like Catholic social teaching translated into medical language. Well, that's I'm wondering that's if you've always is. thought about it in those terms. <laughs> yeah. Okay. <laughs> so did you have to um, work your way there or which, which came first, the, the language and the values or, or the work you were doing? You know, it's, um, it's a great question. And um, I can tell you because I know the year in which that was penned, which was 1987. So I was 27 years old. And I don't, I, I don't really like using the first person in describing the work of Partners in Health, but I will say that I did write that. And I was 27, and the fact that I had been raised Catholic uh, would not have struck me as the reason that I had appealed to Catholic, Catholic social teaching. It was really Haiti again. So, you know, raised Catholic, so was the rest of my family. And they're not particularly enamored of, they're enamored of Catholic social uh, teaching, but um, it was really the reawakening of an understanding of Catholic social teaching. And that was spurred by the things I saw between 1983 and 1987, and in between Harvard Medical School and Haiti. Um, And so if I had to choose between those two, Ashley, I would say that uh, it was the experience that came first. No, I mean, I did, you know, I was kind of forced to go to CCD, uh, but, you know, I didn't leave for college uh, feeling that I had picked up something that would be uh, useful to me for the rest of my life. It was really, again, the experience in Haiti that shocked me into understanding that it would and should be. Now, it sounded like you're when you were in Haiti and throughout your twenties, you had kind of had this experience of like um, disaffiliation or unlearning your the faith you grew up with and finding yourself attracted to it in new ways. What what was it that like you you say Haiti, but what there made you think to connect that to this religion that you've been raised with? You know, I don't like the term religiosity, but uh, there is a fervent religious sentiment in Haiti and certainly in the rural regions. And I had cast my lot with a group of Haitians who were working in healthcare and education or starting to, but it wasn't even a Catholic priest. It was an Episcopalian priest. These are very similar uh, churches, as you know. Being in that community and seeing how they responded to crisis, to illness, injury, flood, famine. I mean, I didn't even know the earthquake would come, really moved me deeply. You know, I learned a lot from them. And then later I could draw on my own childhood. My parents, by the way, are, uh, were, my, my father passed away fairly young, but they were not by any stretch of the imagination devout Catholics. My grandparents were, but not my parents. And neither are my brothers and sisters. But I am, and I owe a lot of that to Haiti. And, you know, then I started reading Gustavo Gutierrez and others in Haiti very often. And also during graduate school, I I ended up doing a doctoral degree in anthropology at the same time I was in medical school. And, uh, and the, you know, I have to say reading uh, liberation theology was one of those, you know, aha moments where 
you know, I, I was looking for something like that. I just didn't know how to describe it. And, uh, and I remember very well the first time I read a book by Gutierrez and I thought this really nails it. And, and then again, I would, was quick to say, I didn't need all the biblical references and the abstract theology. And it was over my head. That's all. And I was busy trying to learn medicine uh, or social theory and anthropology. But I knew as soon as I started reading it that, you know, this was really going to change my life and instruct our work. Um, and it has. And it's not, it's, we, Partners in Health is a secular organization. I have no idea how many people we work with are Catholic. I mean, we also work in, you know, Sierra Leone, a, a majority Muslim country, right? And that work still has resonance there and everywhere else I've worked. So I'm very grateful to Haiti for lots of reasons. Uh, and that is one of them. I'd love to hear more about how you incorporate liberation theology into into your work as as a physician. You you've written before about how this paradigm or methodology of observe, judge, act, which is something Pope Francis has talked about in his uh, pontificate about how we should approach social issues. What what does that look like in the work you're doing against um, infectious disease? Well, you know, it, it's. Um... It's so straightforward that, you know, I'm a little reluctant to elevate it, but, you know, observe, judge, act uh, is also what physicians are supposed to do, right? Um, to assess the patient, to make a judgment about what the problem might be and to fix it. You know, I trust medicine for that reason that it is a, it impels action on behalf of someone else beside yourself. And, uh, but, you know, I could go into more detail and point out that if you're going to a new place, like just say, you know, Sierra Leone uh, at the beginning of an Ebola epidemic, you don't have to observe that long to know that you're in a clinical desert. And that means that you don't have the staff, the stuff, the space, the systems, and the support necessary to provide care to patients. So the observe part could be, okay, let's note that there's absolutely almost nothing uh, maybe, but maybe you'll go to a place like uh, Siberia where there actually is clinical space and lots of doctors and nurses or the equivalent, right? So in each setting, you need to at least have a sense of what's available as a resource. Also, what are the ranking threats to health? Like you could go to any place in the world and say, what are the top five killers of children or young adults or old adults? And and then the next question could be, which ones are being addressed effectively and which ones are not? So the, the real work of observing is, is not trivial. There are plenty of examples where you're in such a clini desiccated clinical desert that you know you're going to need staff, stuff, space, and systems. By the way, by staff, I mean nurses, physicians, medical engineers, managers. By stuff, I mean things like vaccines, medications, laboratory reagents. By space, I mean hospitals, clinics, an Ebola treatment unit, a COVID treatment unit. And where are we? Systems, you know, like infection control, you know, mask wearing, that's a system, right? And then finally, support, which is always needed, even in resource-rich settings. I mean, look how, you know, difficult uh, it's been for American nurses and doctors this year, right? They, they, they have a lot of this fellow staff and the stuff and the space they need, but it's just been very difficult. So they need support. And especially, of course, patients and their families do. So that kind of a observing is what leads to the judgment. And the judgment isn't, should we intervene, which I would regard as a very specious kind of 
discussion. It's in what manner do we intervene, right? And how can we best help? How can we best serve? And then the act part, you know, when you're really good at this, um, which very few of us are, I, I know I need to improve, you can really shrink the time between observe and act. Uh, in a medical emergency, you're expect to you're expected, and I think reasonably so, to be able to act very quickly. Now, going back just a little bit to to judge, because you kind of skipped over it, because you rightly mentioned it doesn't seem like it should be a real, you know, dilemma about whether or not there there should be action. But I feel like a lot of your career has actually been convincing people who are really good at observing and acting how to judge a situation and how to value people who aren't often valued. Um, so I'm wondering why, why I guess, in the, the science or, or the elite global community that that is often so lacking when we're looking at problems like this? Well, that's a very piercing question, which is why I'm smiling. And I don't know if that'll come through to your listeners. You're right. You know, it should not be difficult. Why do I have to waste any time convincing people to act? I mean, what, you know, I'm not a Sierra Leonean facing Ebola. As an example, I'm not uh, you know, a, a rural African woman who's dying of AIDS without antiretroviral therapy. And, and so then you get to a series of almost philosophical questions, right? Why should we be obliged to suggest that it's important to act? And I have to admit, and this is in my darker moments, but I think also in sound analysis, that a lot of it has to do with this othering process we hear about. It's those people far away, they're black, they're brown, they're poor. So I think that a lot of, uh, a lot of the problem that we have around acting is really about a failure to recognize the full humanity of others. And uh, I'm reluctant to talk about that, um, not, not on this podcast, but I'm reluctant to bring it into the, the work unless I know it's going to do something helpful for the patients. And I save a lot of that commentary for my writing, actually, or teaching, because, you know, you don't want to alienate your potential allies in, a middle of a, in the middle of a medical emergency, right? But I could go to example after example. I'm sure, you know, you both uh, culled some of those examples. And why, why, you know, why did it take George Bush to launch the world's most important AIDS treatment program on the continent of Africa. That should have been something everyone was pushing for, right? All medical and public health. I've also found that, uh, you know, there is a strain in public health, a very Luddite thought, and, uh, and it plays very neatly into development economics. You know, it's not sustainable. It's not feasible. It's not cost effective. It's not even prudent to treat AIDS in Africa which is ridiculous, right? So how does that logic come to spoil our ability to act quickly? And that's a, it's not an academic question, right? So it's worth fighting that. The question is when and how and with what weapons, you know, and I've, I've tried to also add to that as, as my coworkers have, well, we're going to give the power of example by saying, don't tell us you can't do this. Don't tell us you can't treat AIDS in rural Haiti. We're doing it. Don't tell us you can't treat Ebola with a higher standard of care. We're trying. You know, I think part of the ways, one of the ways that we move forward uh, as partners in health is by, you know, sometimes being quiet and just doing the work and then being able to point to something and say, look, you know, don't say it's impossible. Don't say it's not feasible, not prudent. 
And please don't say it's not sustainable because, you know, none of us is sustainable. Zach asked about, you know, kind of how the elite medical community thinks about this. I kind of want to shift to what you, how you talked about this to the next generation. All right. So when I was in high school, my older brother, who's now an ER doctor, he was, you know, uh, working in India under a, a doctor there. And he gave me the book Mountains Beyond Mountains by Tracy Kidder, which is about your work in Haiti. Um, and I remember at first being like very inspired by it. Like, oh my gosh, I, you know, I'm someone from suburban Washington. And now I was like, oh, I have something I can like dedicate my life to like fighting global, global poverty. And then I go to college. I'm like, how do I do this? Where do my skills meet the need? Um, go on a couple of mission trips and like, quickly become like overwhelmed by the problem and like disillusioned by my ability to help in any way. And so how do you, how do you fight that kind of like unhelpful idealism or then that turns into cynicism about the, our ability to change anything? Because now Ashley's just podcasting, which is not necessarily helping. (laughs) (laughs) I didn't know that. I didn't know that term, but now I do. Um, You know, there are so many ways to do this. Uh, I was just thinking about Gutierrez, uh, Father Gustavo, and, you know, one of the things that he would often say, you know, on the other side of all this complexity is a simplicity. Hmm. And service is a simplicity, right? I mean, you don't have to solve world hunger before you work in a soup kitchen. You don't have to, you know, cure cancer before you uh, reach out to cancer patients, uh, uh, you know, and, and I'm not talking about as a physician or a nurse. I'm just talking about as a, a person. I mean, most caregiving in the United States, as in Rwanda, where I was last week, most of it happens in homes. It's family members and friends and neighbors who do the caregiving. So I think sometimes that idealism, I don't believe that what you're describing, Ashley, is cynicism, you know paralysis, intimidation. These are intimidating, paralyzing problems, right? COVID today, you know, uh, vaccine uh, distribution. I'm, again, I'm leaving aside vaccine hesitancy, not because I don't think it exists, but because I don't think it's the ranking problem now. You know, I was on the phone with, this sounds so cool to say, the White House yesterday. Um, and about vaccine supply, to Haiti particularly, And right before I uh, took this call, you know, I I was experiencing some of that myself. I was thinking, oh, my God, what if they say yes? How are we going to ship it? You know, the vaccine, what's the, how is it chilled? Where's it going to get picked up? Where's it going to be stored? Uh, But, you know, that, you know, that can be part of a very reasoned kind of uh, thought process. But the main point is a simple one, uh, that you know our neighbors, like us, need to be vaccinated. And even this expression, well, nobody's safe until everybody's safe, or nobody's protected until everybody's protected, you know, I, I say stuff like that. I'm not even sure it's altogether true. After all, I'm vaccinated. I'm very unlikely to get COVID and even less likely to die of it. And you know, and I'm vaccinated and, and not everybody's vaccinated, so I'm not even sure those slogans are true. But I do think that that's one thing that we should, you know, it's what I tell my students, whether uh, at Harvard or in Haiti or Rwanda, is, you know, you don't have to solve everything. And besides, you're not, as an individual, you can't do anything anyway. You have to be part of a team. 
Uh, maybe if you're an artist or a pole vaulter or something, you don't have to be part of a team. But what other arenas of human activity you know, are done by oneself? That's another kind of American pathology, too, the idea that you know, you'll have to work it out. You know, your brother, who's an ER doctor, has chosen a, a branch of medicine that is shift work, right? He goes in and he leaves, right? It, it's, it's, uh, it's very different from, say, you know, the work I get to do, which is, you know, I'm just sitting at my desk looking at a picture of a patient of mine. In 1998, I think, he came in to the hospital in Haiti, and he's taller than I am, I'm, and I'm six feet anyway, and uh, he weighed 88 pounds, and he was dying of AIDS and tuberculosis. And so being a member of a team, I got to say, hey, stop dying already you know, take this, you know, and he was a patient for a long time, but he's still, I mean, he and I are close friends to this day, uh, you know, 23 years later. And, and there are lots of burdens associated with that. There are many joys, right? But, you know, that's being part of a very large team, right? That in, involves, I mean, how many people do you think work with Partners in Health in Haiti? Uh, I have no, it's got to be so many. 5,000. 7,000. Yeah, that would be a very good, that's very close. But, and that's what it was a few years ago. But, you know, I I couldn't do anything for this patient besides anyone could have diagnosed him. All my colleagues, the nurses, doctors, community health workers. My wife, who took a picture of him that day, isn't a physician. She knew what he was suffering with, both the AIDS and the tuberculosis. And, uh, but we did have that system by then. We had, hundreds, now thousands of community health workers. We had a pharmacy team. We had the inpatient nurses. We had, you know, he got home visits. Anyway, and by the way, he later, more recently, became mayor of his town, right? So those are the joys, you know, and his kids and, and, and now grandkids um, are, are, you know, friends or future friends of mine. That's just the kind of joy you can get out of not believing it's all on you. Now, an emergency room doctor has a heavier burden in some ways because when they're on, they're on. Uh, you know, They too work with doctors, nurses, lab techs, administrators, managers, et cetera. But there, uh, there, there are so many ways of avoiding being overwhelmed. And, and for some of my students, medical students anyway, you know, I try to encourage them to find the path in medicine that would really bring them joy and not to do what they think they should do when there are so many things you could do in medicine. By medicine, I mean nursing, medicine, all of the allied health professions. Uh, and that's a great way also to avoid what you call cynicism. But, you know, I'm not, I don't think it's cynical at all. I mean, maybe it's just modesty, right? And were you to find the team that you wanted to work with, you could have kept on struggling against global poverty. And I bet you are to this day. Uh, I'll bet you you take this up in podcasts, and that's a form of uh, solidarity and accompaniment as well. You know, to have a broader public understand what's at stake, you know, around these these matters. Gosh, I feel like I was either preaching or teaching. Well, we we invited you on to do a <laughs> little bit both. of that. Yeah, yeah. Um, want to shift a little bit to someone I know that you're a fan of, which is Pope Francis. Um. You know, he's, How did you guess? <laughs> he's famous for this <laughs> remark where he says he wants the church to be like a field hospital. 
And yeah. typically we only hear, Ashley and I only hear doctors in theology explain what that means. Uh, I'm wondering what, what, when you hear that, what does that analogy mean to you, church's field hospital? And to me, it means the front line of the material struggle against illness and injury. And of course, injury takes all kinds of forms, right? It's not just, you know, falling out of a tr- mango tree in Haiti or getting hit by a car. You know, uh, there just like trauma is not just visible trauma, but also invisible trauma. But what I what I I took that to mean when he said it was, you know, we're going to be on the front lines of the spiritual tr- struggle, of course, but also some of the material struggles. Sometimes you just sit there and wonder these people crossing from North Africa to Europe, who's looking out for them? Who's making sure, you know, at Lampedusa, they're not brutalized? Who's going to stick up for everybody? So even without leaving the Vatican, to me, that's a field hospital kind of intervention to say, you know, uh, the migrant is of a, and, and the refugee, we have a special obligation to the migrant and the refugee. And I'm, maybe that time I was using the Catholic first person week. So, I mean, I imbued it with what I needed to hear at the time. You know, later on, uh, after he said it, you know, we're still laboring to take care of patients with Ebola. You can feel solidarity. You can feel the presence that comes out of a stance that says we will concern ourselves uh, with these matters. How did I do? Great, great. <laughs> Is that like a field hospital? Yeah. What would it, I, from your perspective, what would it take for the for the church in the United States or or globally um, to actually to live that out? Well, you know, I'm uh, compared to what institutions are we doing a terrible job? I, you know, I, I feel like you could say the same mm-hmm. thing about what would it take for uh, the American university to do that kind of a job? What would it take for, you know, uh, the government, uh, which has obligations that a university might not. Uh, what would it take for, you know, financial tech and unbridled capitalism uh, to make uh, commitments in that re- arena? As far as the latter goes, it would take some bridling. You, it would, I would imagine. But I think for uh, the church, all we have to do is to live out, you know, the notions that uh, we're already signed up to live out. And I'm particularly interested in the corporal works of mercy, feed the hungry, clothe the naked, give, uh, you know, shelter the shelterless, visit the dead or bury the dead, visit the prisoners. It's a pretty remarkable list. I mean, I can tell you, again, this goes back to Haiti in the eighties. When I heard those things all lined up together as the corporal works of mercy, I had this little aha moment thinking, oh my God, I heard that in Sunday school, Mm -hmm. you know, See, is it still called CCD? Oh, yeah. And uh, <laughs> yeah. so I knew it was. But, um, you know, and I, I didn't recognize that I wasn't old enough. So maybe this gets back to the question about it was planted in there somewhere. But it made so much sense to me after a year between Harvard and Haiti. And then you start seeing it everywhere in the United States where we have a an epidemic of incarceration, particularly targeting, you know, black and brown men. Um, and you know, you start thinking, well, how could we live out, you know, our commitments in this country without thinking about them? Uh, I don't see how we can, but I have a lot of optimism that we could. Hmm. We have one final question for you. Um, and thank you for being so generous with your time and, and talking with us today. Um, 
it, we ask this for all our guests, and we're going to give you some power here. If, if you could canonize one person, living or dead, Catholic or not, fictional or real, who would it be and why? Well, just a couple of months ago, I would have said the Blessed Margaret. <laughs> however. And, yeah. However. and Pope Francis beat you to it. He beat me to it. And you can be my witnesses since those listening to the podcast can't see this. I even have a little statuette of her here. Um, and you know what they said about her? They said, why was she? She asked to perform miracles, of course, but they said everywhere she goes, things improved. And I thought, that's it. I mean, just make her a saint. And Pope Francis beat me to it. Um, I would hate to make him squirm, but I regard Gustavo Gutierrez as a truly saintly man. And he was a spiritual advisor, as you know, not just to Pope Francis. He is a spiritual advisor, but to Oscar Romero. Again, Francis beat us to it. So I'm going <laughs> to I'm going to nominate Gustavo, Father Gustavo. All right, Saint Gustavo Gutierrez. All right. What do you think? I love it. Yeah, I actually think that's a first for this podcast, which is shocking. So, um yeah. it's about time. You know, he has a good sense of humor. Uh at least I think I think so. Uh we were giving a t- we wrote a book together and we were giving a talk together and I was I I think it was Notre Dame and I was calling him Yoda. And he laughed, but I don't know if he knew who Yoda was, but I think he makes a better saint than a Yoda. Amen to that. Love awesome. It. Well, Dr. Dr. Now Farmer. Edit, now edit that out if it sounds disrespectful. No, I think I think if, if he doesn't think it'd be disrespectful, I don't think it's disrespectful. Dr. Farmer, is there anything you want to plug right now that you want people to read or visit or, or know about? Well, it would be very unseemly to mention one of my own books. No, absolutely. <laughs> no, that. that's what that's what we're asking. No, I'm for. not going to do it. All right. You have to you'll have to do your homework. Well, all right. Well, all right. We'll, how can we'll, listeners we'll support Partners in Okay, and how can people support There you go. I will plug Partners, partners in Health. Health. Partner Yeah, and you know, Partners in Health is uh in serious need of expansion even though we do that every year and count 20,000 employees across a dozen countries. But if you look at the budget of that organization or series of them. It's so small compared to the scope of the work. And I I mean, it's not like I work for Partners in Health. You know, I have a day job. Uh, I just think it's important work. And there are no doubt many other organizations as well, but it's www.pih.org. Awesome. Well, Dr. Farmer, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us today. It was a lot of fun. Have me back if I didn't go on too much oh we we will we will definitely take you up on that and we'll buy you better wine next time too yeah Uh, since that was a microphone and not wine (laughs) awesome thanks so much it's like finding a treasure that's always been hiding the first time that I see inside it and realize it's always been you Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? 
All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. And now it's time for some housekeeping. What do we have this week, Zach? So as we mentioned, this is our final show for until for the summer, right? So we'll be back in the fall. We're going to take some, some time off, regroup. Um, and part of that regrouping is taking your feedback into account. Yes, we have a survey for our listeners. We, we did this last summer, but, you know, things have happened since then. Our listeners hopefully have grown. We have some new ones. So we want your feedback on, you know, what's going well, what you'd like to see change, um, maybe some guest suggestions and things like that. So if you, it's a really big help for us. Uh, it only takes five minutes. I know that last year we got so many good guest suggestions out of that survey, um, including people like Richard Rohr, who we who were able to get on. Yeah. So if you want to have a say in the next season of Jesuitical, please check this out. It's going to be linked in the show notes here on this podcast, but we're, we're also going to post links to it on our Twitter feed and we're going to put it in our Facebook group. So so go look for it there and, and please fill out the survey here in the next couple of weeks. And then we'll be sort of sitting with that, digesting it and, and hopefully making not too many tweaks because, you know, we like it as it is, but- we're gonna we're gonna make some tweaks for for the fall. So that's a survey. And if you're looking for other stuff to do this summer, while Jesuitical and Inside the Vatican are on break, I know it's terrible and sad. Um, America Media is still putting out a ton of content. That's right. You can find it all at americamagazine.org. You know, we are literally publishing like five to ten articles a day, and it's quality stuff. You know, breaking down big stories like the bishops' meeting, but also fun things like I don't know Pope Francis's summer reading list. So you can find all that content there. If you want to support this podcast and the work we're doing over at American Magazine, you can become a digital subscriber at americanmagazine.org slash subscribe. And then we're going to keep our Facebook group going during the summer. So hopefully you can jump in there. Yeah. And we're, you know, as the pandemic is ending and or, or at least evolving to a place that allows us to do more in-person things, um, we're hoping to kind of schedule some of that stuff. We, we miss being on the road. We miss meeting people. Follow us on, on Twitter or Facebook or, or sign up for our Patreon account if you want to stay in the loop on you know what what the next live events are going to be. We're also going to do, I, th- I think, at least uh, one or two uh, sort of Zoom meetings. You know, We had a really successful one talking about Fratelli 2T this past year. And so we want to do a little bit more of that because we love talking to you. We love meeting you. So uh, follow us wherever you can to stay in the loop about all of that and more. Yeah. And if you want us to come to your college or parish, Email us at jesuitical at americamedia.org. We would love to get back on the road. Absolutely. <laughs> and now it's time for Consolations and Desolations, the part of our show where we talk about where we found God in our lives this week and where it was harder to. What do you have this week, Zach? So I've got a consolation, and um, I want to I preface this that I got permission to talk about this um, from from this friend, but I'm, I'm going to try and keep it as anonymous as possible. So I have a friend who is part of a 12-step program for Alcoholics Anonymous. And you may or may not know this if you've ever had someone go through this, but part of that process is is, is making amends. And this person came and made amends with, with me. And 
I found myself so moved um, by that process because it, I, I don't know, it felt so, so genuine and, and, and caring and really building towards reconciliation. It, it wasn't cheap apologies or looking for cheap forgiveness. You know, there's, there's questions about, you know, this is what I, it, this is what I did. What, how did that affect you? And, and how did that affect us? And that just kind of blew me away. I've never been through that experience before. And it just made me think about, it reminded me of what real reconciliation looks like with, with, with God and, and, and that relationship. If we have, you know, if, if this type of thing can occur between friends that, you know, surely this is also at least the way that God wants, wants to relate to us. That was my great consolation this week. And and in asking if there was anything I could could do to support this friend, they said, you know, just just tell people about it. Tell people about this this type of program. So if you are if you are looking for help, um, there are twelve step programs all around the country. So definitely Google them and take a look at them if if, if that's something you want to or need right now. That's really beautiful. Yeah. Thanks for sharing that. Yeah. What do you have this week, Ashley? Uh, I also have a consolation. You know, not unrelated to what we were talking about in Signs of the Times this week. So, uh, I was lecturing at Mass uh, this past week, and as part of that, you get to do the prayers of the faithful. And there, there were three people who were getting their first Holy Communion: um, younger kids who uh, missed the missed the big ceremony at the 9 a.m. Mass and and got the consolation ceremony at the 6 p.m. Mass where I was lecturing. <laughs> um, but it was like. It was, it was, I got very like emotional when I was up there, like, you know, and I was praying for the people who received Holy Communion for the first time at this mass. And I got to say each of their names by name and, or yeah, I got to say each of their names, look them in the face. And it was just like such a much needed reminder, like amid this acrimonious debate about the Eucharist and the weaponization of the Eucharist and the political politicization of the Eucharist about like what the Eucharist is and what it means to receive it and what it means to receive it for the first time. And especially, yeah, just being able to look into their faces, say their names. It was just like a reminder of like, when we're doing this, this is, this is Jesus like gazing upon us in the Eucharist. That that's what it really is about. And, and it's beautiful and it's miraculous and it's not to be taken lightly um, and it's not to be politicized it's just to be approached with like great humility and love and just to like have that experience amid this terrible debate (laughs) um, was like a much needed consolation and reminder of of what it means um, in my life and and the life of the church amen to that love love kids and first communions yep so great awesome well get us out of here for the last time this season Jesuitical is produced by Maggie Van Dorn and engineered by Kevin Christopher Robles. Faith Formation provided by Father Eric Sundrup. You can follow us on Twitter at Jesuitical Show. You can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash groups slash Jesuitical. Please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your favorite podcasts and leave us a review. Jesuitical is a production of America Media in New York City. For America Media, I'm Ashley McKinless with Zach Davis. We will see you in the fall. 